I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Siddhartha Mujerkee. Siddhartha Mukherjee is a cancer physician and researcher. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University and a cancer physician at the CU-NYU Presbyterian Hospital. He has been a fellow at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an attending physician at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. His articles have appeared in Nature, New England Journal of Medicine, The New York Times, and the New Republic. He is the author of The Emperor of All Maladies, A Biography of Cancer. Please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee. I thought I would do something somewhat different from what I normally do with talks as part of the beginning of the year and I will address the central question in the talk. But I thought I would uh, begin by asking uh, a rather provocative question, which is, uh, for me, which was a very important question, which is, instead of talking about the content of the book, which it, as you know, is 600 pages long, so there's no way, without uh, keeping you for several hours, that I will ever do justice to the book, I thought I would write, rather than talking about content, I would write, talk about process. In other words, how on earth does one write uh, a 600-page book on a topic which spans 4,000 years of history and also on a topic that's generating knowledge even as we speak? So in other words, there, there is no end, there's no destination, and yet is somehow, somehow fundamentally stitched into our history. About seven years ago, when I started writing this book, that was the challenge. The challenge really was... How, how can one stitch together into a coherent narrative, um, into a structure, a, a, a long history which seemed so amorphous um, that, it, that it seemed the project itself seemed uh, a little bit mad. I often described um, just, a, just a vignette of that. I, uh, when I first started writing the book, like all uh, authors, I was told to write a book proposal. And I, 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 I struggled for nearly one year just to write the proposal let alone writing the book. And in fact, the best uh, piece of advice that I got um, was from another author, actually a fiction writer, who said, you know what, don't, because the expanse of the book is what you intend it to be, don't bother about a proposal. In fact, start writing the book, and when you're ready to have 200 or 300 pages, when you're 200 pages in, that's going to be your proposal. And in fact, that's what I did, rather than writing it, because I could not, I could not summarize because the the book was in its writing, and I, I don't know if some people have read the book, but it, it really felt to me that I could not convey in six pages what it meant to be a patient, uh, a woman in 1890 uh, who was undergoing a radical mastectomy. I could not convey in four pages what it meant to be the first survivor of leukemia in <clears throat> 1950, or what it means to find, as a young physician, what it means to actually find the longest survivor of Herceptin therapy. Um, these people's stories are stitched into our history, and yet, oddly enough, they weren't present. And that was the vacuum that this book tried to address. So the vacuum that the book tries to address was, here I was training as an oncologist, um, and here is a disease, or rather a family of diseases, that will statistically affect each and every one of our lives. The numbers are, are startling. Um, one in 
two men and one in three women in the United States will face cancer in some form or another during the, our life, lifetimes, which means statistically it is a reality for each and every one of us because it will affect either us or one of our loved ones. And yet, the astonishing thing to me as, as in training as a fellow was that the history of this disease, which is enveloping our lives, which is becoming the defining plague of our generation, had oddly vanished. In other words, we didn't know, we don't know the, the questions that I had set out to, to answer, which is, who was the first survivor of chemotherapy? How did we launch the war on cancer? Where are we now? What happens next? Um, how did we get here? And what are the steps? What are the historical steps that brought us here? And it seemed to be very, very clear that if we didn't answer that history, we would lose a part of ourselves because this story is the story of our parents' generation, this story is the story of our generation, and it will become very soon the story of our children. So that was the audacity, if you will, of the project, is to try to write a history. And, and there were, I should tell you, much like any such project, there were several naysayers. Um, a, a publisher said, uh, sent a note to, uh, when the book was first being sold, a publisher sent a note to, uh, to, the, to my agent saying, our publication agency does not do cancer. Uh, <laughs> which I thought was simultaneously very humbling but also very troubling to me. It seems to me that now that the book has been sold very widely, maybe they, many other agencies will be doing cancer. Uh, um, I thought I would, I would divide the talk into three sections. The first is content, second is structure, and the third I will keep as a, as a bit of a mystery. The, the third section I will tell you as I arrive at it. But in order to launch that conversation, the first discussion um, that I'd like, to, I'd like to talk about is the inspiration for writing the book, aside from what I just told you, aside from trying to narrate uh, what I call a hidden history. Um, and that was very early on. I sat down with uh, my editor, Nan Graham, um, at Scribner, and she said to me something that's very enlightening, and I think as readers, that's something that, that sometimes we forget, and for me, was very clarifying. It was almost a cathartic, a cleansing uh, statement. And she said, you know, you're sitting in an office today in New York, and if you, and you know, there's an entire paraphernalia built around the book industry. Um, there are bookstores and booksellers, and uh, you know, you, you create a product, it, it looks a particular way, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, Ultimately, as a reader, a book is an instrument to allow uh, one writer sitting alone in a room somewhere to communicate with one reader sitting alone in a room somewhere. And if you forget that for a second, you will never be able to write a book. It seemed to me, as a reader, I found that statement very moving and very, very poignant, but it seemed to me it also captured something about medicine. Um, and that is that if you forget for a second the enormous paraphernalia button of medicine, the CAT scans and the MRIs and the hospitals and the, and the many, many structures that contribute to it, in the end, medicine is a transaction, a densely emotional transaction that happens between one doctor sitting alone in a room somewhere and one patient sitting alone in that room, hopefully in the same room. <laughs> um, and that might change soon. But, um, but nonetheless... Um, but, but that analogy, I took that analogy very seriously because it seemed to me that what the basis of that analogy is the fact that ultimately medicine is a narrative uh, endeavor, uh, however you cut it, uh, however you compute it, um, whether it's by numbers, whether it's by writing papers, 
the bottom line of medicine occurs through narrative structure. Patients tell their stories, um, doctors hear their stories and reconstruct a story and tell back a story to a patient. And it's in this, it's, it's in this narrative, what I call the narrative transaction, between uh, telling a story, receiving a story, and having it told back to you, that actually the bulk of medicine happens. Um, there's an amazing statistic that someone told me recently that um, a study was performed uh, several years ago where they asked the question, how long is it before a doctor interrupts a patient um, in, in, while the patient is giving a, a primary history? In other words, the patient starts speaking, what is the time period? Um, any guesses? <laughs> so uh, I, I hear many numbers. Uh, uh, the answer was 18 seconds. Um, that is less, by the way, than the amount of time that we can finish a single sentence. Uh, or maybe a couple of sentences. If you speak very fast, you can squeeze in. Um, so in other words, before that period of time, already what I call this shamanic, this narrative aspect of medicine was being interrupted and cut dead. Um, and, and, and what was emerging as a result of that was these was truncated stories. And we know what happens when stories get truncated. There's frustration on both ends. Um, and therefore, uh, and, and, and one of the consequences of these truncated stories is that people feel not fully unburdened, patients feel not fully unburdened of the, of the primary reason they've gone to a doctor, which I think the primary reason is to tell their story and to get back a story so that they can have a negotiation about what I call the narrative aspect of medicine. So, um, by the way, I'm not the only person who's talked about the narrative aspect of medicine. There's, been, there's a whole literature about this, but it seemed to me, again, in the practice of medicine that somehow this had also vanished. So, in terms of writing, then, a book about cancer, it was very clear to me from that analogy that I, uh, that I talked about that the book would have to capture the narrative quality of cancer. So then how does one then capture it? Um, well, the, the, the second instinct that I have, and now I'm really talking about content, the second instinct that I had is that if that's the case, then I had to find the patients. And I think this, if there is any single insight in writing this book, it was that insight. Whenever, as a writer, I felt that the pulse of the book um, got, got slowed down, it was almost like watching, watching a patient in real time, I, I had a sense, because this was such a long project, um, I could sense, the, I could really have a, have a finger on what I thought was the pulse of the book. I could hear it. Um, and whenever I felt that the pulse of the book would, had, had dipped, it was almost always because I was not undergoing a process of discovery in writing, and it was because I was not discovering the stories behind the medicine, and the stories inevitably involved patients. So, um, as I said, in terms of content then, at every juncture it was uncovering or unveiling the hidden histories, what I thought were hidden histories of patients. So, again, to remind us, the very first patients who were treated with mastectomies, the very first uh, child who survived with leukemia, the very, the very first woman who was treated actually at UCLA um, with her septum for breast cancer. Um, I will now try to give you an example then of what happens. How does one then discover a story? Um, and in that example, I think, lies uh, much of, of what I discovered in the book. As I said, instead of covering the vast swath of the book, I'd rather concentrate on, 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 on smaller aspects of it, which make it more, much more personal um, and much more imp important to me. So let me tell you the, the one story um, which has a, has, a, has, a, has a charming conclusion. The book, uh, those of you who have the book, uh, know that it, it begins with a dedication to Robert Sandler, 1945 to 1948, and to those who came before and after him. 
um, and immediately once is struck by those numbers, 1945 to 1948. That means it's a span of three years. Um, and that is because the, the, the first uh, salvo of the book originates in Boston with Sidney Farber, who was a pathologist. Uh, he was a doctor of the dead. So, so I'm going to take you back to that moment in Boston in 1947, 1946. Um, Sidney Farber um, has a basement laboratory in, in Boston, um, and he's a pathologist. He's, he's actually a very accomplished pathologist, but his job involves dissecting specimens, doing autopsies. And in fact, his laboratory is a tiny laboratory. Um, there are pictures of it in the book. You can visit it, although it's really now been covered up with, with uh, vast, enormous new institute. But, but if you go through the tunnels, which I, which I went through, you can actually find some semblance of that old laboratory. It's about 12 feet by about 8, eight, eight by 12 feet. It's really a closet. And he was performing his experiments there. But Farber was driven by um, a, a, a very fundamental notion, which is that he wanted to uh, uh, stop being just a pathologist, stop just seeing patients after that they had died or diagnosing disease. He wanted to treat patients. And he had a very, very seminal insight in the entire universe of cancers. He chose acute lymphoblastic leukemia in children. It's a very rare or relatively rare form of cancer, actually common in children, um, but a, a rare form of cancer overall. Um, but, but why did Farber choose acute lymphoblastic leukemia? Well, there were several reasons, but the most important reason was that this was a world before CAT scans and MRIs, <clears throat> excuse me, and le leukemia is a tumor of white blood cells, and it could be measured. He could draw a droplet of blood, and he could look under the microscope and say, well, the leukemia has grown or fallen by measuring the number of, of white malignant cells in the blood. And this was, a, this was an incredibly important insight, because for the first time then, he could talk about remissions because if, if the tumor vanished or disappeared or, or grew, he could chart the progress of a tumor and therefore make cancer an experimentally amenable, uh, amenable uh, discipline. Um, remember, this is a time when the word cancer was rarely talked about. Uh, I, I recount the story in the book from 1950 of Fanny Rosenau, a cancer advocate, a breast cancer survivor, who calls up the New York Times um, and says, um, you know, I'd like to place an advertisement um, for a, survivors, uh, a survivor group for women with breast cancer. And there's a long pause on the phone, and the society editor of the New York Times comes back on the phone, and she says, well, you know, Ms. Rosenau, we cannot use the words breast and cancer in the New York Times. What if we said, um, what if we said this was a survivor group for women of diseases of the chest wall? Uh, <laughs> and so, this is 1950, by the way. Um, uh, this is not 1850, this is 1950. Um, and Fanny Rosen, I was so disgusted, she hung up. Um, but it, it, this, is, this, is the, this is the atmosphere that, 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 uh, that, Sidney, Farber, uh, that Sidney Farber worked in. Um, cancer as a silent disease, as a whispered about disease, the big C, as it was often called. And Farber, again, from his basement laboratory, became obsessed with childhood leukemia, knowing that he could measure it, and having being able to measure it, he began to imagine that could he direct a chemical against this. It turned out that um, Farber had a friend um, um, who, had, who actually lived also in, I've, I've been to, actually he lived in a basement in Brookline in uh, Massachusetts, and if you've, been to, if you've been to Boston and Brookline, it turns out that most of these basements in the winter get completely covered up in snow. There's a little window usually, and so for the entire winter, the basement is entirely dark. Um, there's, you know, there's a tiny garret window. Um, so he, he lived in, his name was Yella Subarau. 
Um, he um, was an Indian scientist, actually trained in medicine in South India, and then caught a boat to study um, at what was then called the Institute for Tropical Medicine um, at Harvard. Uh, now, as you know, uh, Boston is not very tropical. Um, <laughs> and Subarau uh, discovered this the hard way, and very soon, actually, he didn't have any means of, of really sustaining himself, and so he began to clean bathrooms. Uh, he didn't have a license to practice in the United States, so he began to clean bathrooms. Um, and through a series of connections while he was cleaning bathrooms in the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is what, by the way, where I was an intern, um, and um, um, he was, was cleaning, um, cleaning bathrooms, and then eventually got himself a job at the Department of Biochemistry, but then, and, and made amazing discoveries. Um, in fact, he discovered ATP. People who are familiar with ATP know how seminal that discovery is. Um, but then he was denied tenure at Harvard. Um, uh, there was you know, a chance of, a, of an Indian with, 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 uh, with, uh, with his background getting tenure uh, at Harvard those days um, was, was considered uh, way out of the ordinary. So he was sent off actually to a pharmaceutical company where he ran a group uh, up in New York um, called Letterly, um, and he, began, he had begun to synthesize variants of folic acid, a vitamin. And while synthesizing variants of folic acid, he had discovered a variant of an antifolate, much like you can synthesize something and find its opposite. Um, uh, he had found an antifolate. Now, Sidney Farber had reasons to believe, again, based on some historical evidence, that antifolates might arrest the growth of cancer cells. So he called up Subarau. Actually, Subarau was one of the, Farber was one of the few friends that Subarau had at Harvard still. So Farber called up Subarau and said, would you send the antifolates to Boston? And so that's how the first vials of aminopterin, this chemical, came finally to Boston. And Farber began to treat uh, children with leukemia with antifolates. So that much, this is the recorded history. Um, you can find this, as I did, by searching the archives. You can find this by looking at uh, Farber's papers, which are stored in various sites. But then the history becomes unrecorded, and that's the moment when you begun, begin, really, your work as a narrator. Um, so I'm going to tell you um, how... So then I became interested in finding then who was that child then who was treated with, um, with uh, leukemia. And because my writing process, I was just talking about this yesterday, because my writing process is incredibly linear, I start with one word and I end with the last word of, the, of, a, of, a, of a paragraph or a sentence or even a chapter, um, I became stuck on who this child was. And I couldn't write the book. It felt to me as if the book could not be written if I couldn't find this child. And the only word I had about this child was his name was R.S. Um, because I, I knew from, a, from Sidney Farber's papers that his name was R.S., um, and I had no other information about the child, where the child was, etc. Um, so I was in Boston then, and I began to put out um, uh, mails on listservs saying, you know, if you were RS, or if you, I mean, obviously the child I knew had died based on the paper, but if you knew this child, um, contact me, give me any information that's available. Um, and there was nothing, there was no response. Um, and this went on for months. And I was here, I was stuck on page you know, 35 of my book, <laughs> unable to write anymore. Um, so I felt kind of dejected, and I went to my parents' house in Delhi, um, where um, someone said to me, you know, Yella Subarau, the chemist who had been shuffled off to uh, New York, um, has one, had a biographer. He was, he's, he was then about 85 years old, this biographer of Yella. Yella had died himself. 
um, this biographer was 85 years old, and someone said, you know, he lives about two blocks away from your parents' house. Why don't you just go visit him? So I said, fine, I'll visit him. So this is why I was on vacation. So I said, fine, I'll go visit him. So I go to visit this man. Um, he's 85, and he says to me, oh, you know, he's had a long conversation. Coming to an end, he says to me, well, you know, I don't know if you care, but I was, in Dana, I was at the Sydney Farber Cancer Institute in the 1950s, um, and in fact, um, I don't know if you really are interested, but I have a roster of all the patients that Sidney Farber <laughs> was treating for leukemia. And so it was for me a, a, a metaphor for how not just this book gets written, but how science is done, how all of our lives come together. So here I was 6,000 miles away from where I had expected to find the child, and, and um, Mr. Gupta, the biographer, hands me a picture uh, which is reproduced in the book of the two children. It turns out that the child, R.S., his name was actually Robert Sandler, had a twin, Elliot Sandler, and only one child was affected by leukemia um, and died at uh, three years old. And the mother's name was in that, uh, it was in that little photograph, and it was Helen Sandler. It was all recorded. Um, so I essentially I ran back to Boston. I mean, I flew back, but <laughs> I, I, metaphorically, I ran back to Boston. And, and now, using the archival records um, and the death records of Boston, I could figure out where Robert Sandler lived. Um, and in about 15, 20 minutes, having completed a, a journey that took me 12,000 miles around the globe, I was back where I had started, and I could now find myself in this child's house. Um, uh, and, and I was in Dorchester, and therefore, uh, and therefore find myself back where I had started. And again, this was a metaphor for how, how many things happen. So I'm going to read to you one little section then about how, from a paper, from a scientific paper, um, one can construct um, uh, uh, one can construct uh, a story, a narrative. Because as I as I say several times in the book, every piece of medicine and science is about narration, is about storytelling. And you should be able to find, if you're a doctor, if you're a patient, but if you're a reader of literature, you should be able to take a scientific paper and find literature in it. Um, so he, here's here's the story now constructed out of those very same elements that I had talked about to you before. Um, but, um, and I'll remind you where they came from in each little pieces. So um, seven miles southwest of the Longwood Hospitals in Boston, the town of Dorchester is a typical sprawling New England suburb, a triangle wedged between the sooty industrial settlements to the west and the gray-green bays of the Atlantic to the east. In the late 1940s, waves of Jewish and Irish immigrants, shipbuilders, ironcasters, railway engineers, fishermen, and factory workers settled in Dorchester occupying rows of brick and clapboard houses that snaked their way up Blue Hill Avenue. Dorchester reinvented itself as the quintessential suburban family town with parks and playgrounds along the river, a golf course, a church, and a synagogue. On Sunday afternoons, families converged at Franklin Park to walk through its leafy pathways or, watch, or to watch ostriches, polar bears, and tigers at its zoo. And again, each of these sentences is really drawn from material that I was reading about the history of Dorchester. If you look up the history of Dorchester, you will find actually an article from the 1940s about someone going to visit an ostrich at the zoo. Um, and uh, you know, it stuck somewhere in the back of my mind, such that when I was finally writing this paper or writing this, uh, this document, um, it, it, it you know, sort of flashed up somewhere in the back. Um, uh, on August 16, 1947, again, this is why the zoo is important, in a house directly across from the zoo, a child of a ship worker in the Boston Yards fell mysteriously ill with a low-grade fever that waxed and waned over two weeks without pattern, followed by increasing lethargy and pallor. 
Robert Sandler was two years old. His twin, Elliot, was an active cherubic toddler in perfect health. Ten days, and now I'm going back to Farber's paper, which is actually a clinical description. Ten days after his first fever, Robert's condition worsened significantly. His temperature climbed higher. His complexion turned from rosy to spectral milky white. He was brought to the children's hospital in Boston. His spleen, a fist-sized organ that stores and makes blood, usually barely palpable under the ribcage, was visibly enlarged, heaving down like an overfilled bag. A drop of blood under Farber's, Farber's microscope revealed the identity of his illness. Thousands of immature lymphoid leukemic blasts were dividing in a frenzy, their chromosomes condensing and uncondensing like tiny clenched and unclenched fists. Sandler arrived at Children's Hospital just a few weeks after Farber had received his first package from Yella at Letterly. On September 6, 1947, we now go back to the paper, Farber began to inject Sandler with uh, terol aspartic acid, or PAA, the first of Letterly's antifolates. Consent to run a clinical trial for a drug, even a toxic drug, was not typically required. Parents were occasionally cursorily informed about the trial. Children were almost never informed. The Nuremberg, the Nuremberg Code for Human Experimentation requiring explicit voluntary consent from patients was drafted on August 9, 1947, less than a month after the PAA trial. It is doubtful that Farber and Boston even heard of such a required consent code. The, the drug had little effect. Over the next month, Sandler turned increasingly lethargic. He developed a limp, the result of a leukemia pressing down on his spinal cord. Joint aches appeared, and then violent migrating pains. Then the leukemia burst through one of his bones in his thigh, causing a fracture and unleashing a blindingly intense, indescribable pain. Again, this is described in Farber's paper in a very cold, clinical way, actually. By December, the case seemed hopeless. The tip of Sandler's spleen, more dense than ever with leukemic cells, dropped down to his pelvis. He was withdrawn, listless, swollen, and pale, almost certainly on the verge of death. On December 28th, however, Farber received a new version of antifolate from Subarau and Kilti, aminopterin, a chemical with a small change in the structure of PAA. Farber snatched the drug as soon as it arrived and began to inject the boy with it, hoping at best for a minor reprieve in his cancer. The response was marked. The white cell count, which had been climbing astronomically, 10,000 in September, 20,000 in November, and nearly 70,000 in December, and again, we go back to the primary record for this, um, suddenly stopped rising and hovered at a plateau. And then, even more remarkably, the count actually started to drop, the leukemic blasts gradually flickering out in the blood and then all but disappearing. By New Year's Eve, the count had dropped to nearly one-sixth its peak value, bottoming out at, nearly an, at a nearly normal level. The cancer had not vanished. Under the microscope, there were still malignant white cells, but it had temporarily abated, frozen into a hematological stalemate in the frozen Boston winter. On January 13, 1948, Sandler returned to the clinic, walking on his own for the first time in two months. His spleen and liver had shrunk so dramatically that his clothes, Farber noted, had become loose around the abdomen. His bleeding had stopped. His appetite had turned ravenous, as if he were trying to catch up on six months of lost meals. By February, Farber noted the child's alertness, nutrition, and activity were equal to his twins. For a brief month or so, Robert Sandler and Elliot Sandler seemed identical again. So, so that is how the book got written, um, essentially by going back to often a clinical record and fusing it with a historical record and fusing that with an interview. Um, and in the end, all of this vanished because it became a story. Um, and, you know, uh, and I think that was, that, that, that was what, um, how the process was. 
Um, I'd like to tell you one last piece of this, which is probably the most moving piece of all of this, which is that one week after the book was published, um, uh, I got a phone call, um, and uh, it was Elliot Sandler. Uh, uh, and uh, I was in my office, I was working, and um, I got this phone call uh, all of a sudden, and he said, you know, I hadn't read this book. I walked, I walked to the bookstore, and I opened the book, and I saw my brother's name on the dedication. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, and I, I was moved to call you. He got my phone number through an agent and a publisher, and so forth. He really worked hard to get to me. Um, and it turned out that Helen Sandler, the mother, was still alive. Um, and in fact, her picture is in the book. Um, so I spoke to her through the son, through Elliot. They both live in Maine. I would have never found them. Um, they had moved several times, uh, moved away in Maine. And Helen Sandler, again, through Elliot, said, um, they told me a very, very interesting and, and moving story, and that completes uh, this section about content. And that is, she said, um, she, was Jew she is Jewish, and in her religion, um, particularly in the 1950s, the idea of, of performing an autopsy on a three-year-old child was sacrilegious. Um, uh, it didn't violate the body. And she said that Farber, because he was a pathologist and because he was treating uh, Robert, had begged her, essentially, to allow him to perform an autopsy uh, to find out whether this child had truly had a good remission or not, uh, to find out what the status of the leukemia, uh, leukemia was. Um, and, and she had finally consented, and she said the decision had haunted her for about 80 years. And she said now with the book, with, with seeing her child's name on the book, that story for her had come to a close. Um, she felt as if you know, she had done a, a, a service. Um, I, I, I say this, because, I say this with, with a great deal of humility, because I say this because um, re remember the kind of sacrifices and the legacy of uh, patients that uh, predates us. Every time you go to a hospital and you avail of a clinical trial, um, it's, a, it's, it's very important to remember that there's a vast legacy of people who are much braver than certainly me, but much braver than, than many others who have given up their lives for, um, to study, to be allowed to be studied, um, to participate. Um, and, and, and for me, this story was a real reminder of that legacy. And if you forget that legacy for a second, I do think that, that medicine will collapse as a discipline. Um, this then is the birth of chemotherapy. So um, when, when we now talk about chemotherapy, as, as a fellow, as an oncologist now, every time I give chemotherapy, I, I realize that I didn't know any of this story. I had studied cancer for about 12 years of my life, and I did not know. I, I, gave, amin, I gave amin option. I gave this drug about 30 times. Um, and yet, amazingly enough, um, I did not know that this was, you know, not, not just this, but this spiraling story involving a twin, a survivor, an autopsy, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just, a, that's just an example from the book. Again, I'm not going to go through all the details, but that's just an example of the density of what you can discover if you just lift up the covers. And it's so deep and so dense that goes inside. Um, the second piece that I'm going to talk about now is structure. Uh, so how, how, one, uh, how does one create structure out of all of this? 
Um, and I have a quick answer to that, um, and that is that I divided the book up into um, six sections. Um, the sections are actually quite self-contained, um, and the sections actually address the major movements in the history of cancer. So there's a section about the ancient history of cancer. Um, there is a section on surgery. There is a section on prevention. There is a section <clears throat> on the discoveries of the 1980s and 1990s on the cancer genome. And finally, the last uh, section is about the, the, what happens next, the future, based on the new understanding of cancer. And I thought that the, this, these descriptions, uh, these, these sections which were relatively discrete, allowed me to take a, a vast, again, a vast history and to package it in discrete forms. But that said, I then made sure that every section was intermingled with each other, so I threw some prevention into the first section. I added a piece of, you know, I added some stories about mammography in, in, a, in a very late section so that one would never imagine that this was not a conversation that was happening between various sections of the book, various parts of the book. So um, in terms of structure then, the solution uh, to structure, so if the solution to content was, was human stories, the solution to structure was to divide up the history in very discrete portions such that the whole piece would make together not only as, a, as individual story units, but as an entire movement so that you could begin a book, the book from the first word, and read to the last word as if it were a story. Um, I'm going to now talk briefly about the last point that, um, that, that I had, had talked to you about. And that is that even when I had solved, I thought, the problems of content and structure, it seemed to me that there was an enormous problem that was still left, and that was probably the most important problem in the book, and that was emotion. Um, and that was um, not what happens here in the history of medicine, but what happens here in the history of medicine. That, to me, was far, far more important. And the question was, how does one get there? How does one get to that? Um, and I actually looked to writers. Um, people often ask me, well, who did you look to? And interestingly, I didn't look to writers. I looked to writers of fiction for that. Um, I looked to um, actually a book that really inspired me. You would never imagine, or perhaps you'd never suspect until you'd read uh, the, the acknowledgement. I looked to a book called, um, called Survival at Auschwitz by Primo Levi, um, which was an, an incredibly important book to me and in ways I cannot describe for this book because that was a description of a journey um, which captured an enormous journey, but again, through small stories. Um, and so in ways that are totally unrelated. I, there's no relationship in the content of the book, but there were deep emotional connections between these two books um, that I felt. It was sort of a, it was kind of a, it was a silent mentor to me for this, book, for this project. Um, and, and again, the solution to it ended up being um, that I had to put my own voice in there. So in other words, this could not be a history. Um, this had to be what I call a biography. This could not be um, my own experiences, the frustrations, the challenges, would have to enter the book. Um, and that, I have to say, was the most difficult of all, of all finding that voice and restraining that voice, um, making it almost invisible but always present, um, was, was the toughest challenge of, of, writing, of writing the book. Um, so I'm going to now uh, read, actually, the, last, page of the of, last pages of the book to tell you how that voice comes in. And in doing so, I think um, I will actually summarize uh, two very important questions, which is what happens next and what does the landscape of cancer look like um, in terms of cure, in terms of the visions for the future. So, um, and that will actually end the, end the talk and I'd like to answer questions 
Um, so there are two very small sections that I'm going to read. Um, one of them concerns breast cancer, and actually, interestingly, I think, summarizes the entire book. So this is, in fact, the landscape. That's, it's, a, it's a summary landscape. It appears in one of the last pages of the book. Um, to envision what such a victory might look like, permit a thought experiment. Recall Atossa, the Persian queen with possible breast cancer in 500 BC. Again, this is someone we meet very early on in the book, a woman, Queen Atossa, who um, is probably one of the earliest descriptions of what might have been breast cancer. We don't know because the word doesn't exist. But if you look at Herodotus's writings, you actually find a case description which remarkably resembles breast cancer. Imagine Atossa traveling through time, appearing and reappearing in one age after the next. She is cancer's Dorian Gray. As she, moved through the arc, as she moves through the arc of history, her tumor, frozen in stage and behavior, remains the same. Atossa's case allows us to recapitulate past advances in cancer therapy and to consider its future. How has her treatment and prognosis shifted in the last 4,000 years, and what happens to Atossa later in the new millennium? First pitch, uh, pitch Atossa backward in time to Imhotep's clinic in Egypt in 2500 BC. This, by the way, is the very first time that we ever hear in the human, in human record the uh, history of a case which resembles breast cancer, 2500 BC. Imhotep has a name for her illness. It is a hieroglyph that we cannot pronounce. He provides a diagnosis, but there is no treatment, he says, humbly closing the case. In 500 BC, in her own court, Atossa self-prescribes the most primitive form of a lumpectomy, which is likely performed by her Greek slave. 200 years later, in Thrace, Hippocrates identifies her tumor as Carcinos, thus giving her, an Ill, uh, her illness a name that will ring through its future. Claudius Galen, in AD 168, hypothesizes a universal cure, a systemic overdose of black bile, trapped melancholia boiling out as a tumor. So again, we're moving through every description in the, in the history of breast cancer. A thousand years flash by, Atossa's entrapped black bile is purged from her body, yet her tumor keeps growing, relapsing, invading, and metastasizing. Medieval surgeons uh, chisel away at her cancer with knives and scalpels offering frog's blood, and this is actually from a document, lead plates, goat dung, holy water, crab paste, caustic chemicals, and various other treatments. In 1778, in John Hunter's clinic in London, her cancer is at last assigned a stage, early localized breast cancer or late advanced invasive cancer. For the former, Hunter recommends a local operation. For the latter, he recommends remote sympathy. And these are actually Hunter's words. When Atossa reemerges in the 19th century, she encounters a new world of surgery. In Halstead's Baltimore Clinic in 1890, Atossa's breast cancer is treated with the boldest and most definitive therapy thus far, radical mastectomy, with the large excision of the tumor and removal of the deep chest muscles and the lymph node under the armpit and the collarbone. By the way, it takes 90 years to disprove that that therapy has any benefit. In the early 20th century, radiation oncologists tried to obliterate the tumor locally using x-rays. By the 1950s, yet another generation of surgeons learned to combine the two strategies, although tempered by moderation. And this is actually a return back to a much more local uh, uh, local mastectomy or local lumpectomy followed by radiation. Um, Atossa's cancer is treated locally with a simple mastectomy or a lumpectomy followed by radiation. In the 1970s now, new therapeutic strategies emerge again. Atossa's surgery is followed by adjuvant combination chemotherapy to diminish the chance of a relapse. A tumor tests positive for estrogen receptor, so tamoxifen, the anti-estrogen, is, is added to prevent a relapse. In 1986, her tumor is further discovered to be HER2 amplified. 
In addition to surgery, radiation, adjuvant chemotherapy, and tamoxifen, she's treated with targeted therapy using Herceptin. By the way, these trials occurred uh, four miles down the road from here. Um, it is impossible to enumerate the precise impact of these interventions on atosis survival. The shifting landscape of trials does not allow a direct comparison between Atossa's fate in 500 BC and her fate in 1989, but surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, hormonal therapy, and targeted therapy have likely added anywhere between 17 and 30 years to her survival. Diagnosed at 40, say, Atossa can reasonably be expected to celebrate her 60th birthday. In the mid-1990s, the management of Atossa's breast cancer takes another turn. Her diagnosis at an early age and her acumenid ancestry raised the question of whether she carries a mutation in BRCA1 or BRCA2. Atossa's genome is sequenced, and indeed, a mutation is found. She enters an intensive screening program to detect the appearance of a tumor in her unaffected breast. Uh, her two daughters are also tested. Found positive for BRCA1, they're offered either intensive screening, prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, or tamoxifen to prevent the development of invasive breast cancer. For Atossa's daughters, the impacts of screening and prophylaxis are dramatic. A breast MRI might identify a small lump in one daughter. It might be found to be breast cancer and surgically removed in its early pre-invasive stage. The other daughter might choose to undergo a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy. Having excised her breasts preemptively, she might live her life out free of breast cancer. Move Atossa into the future now. By the way, each of these statements is based on a very, very pivotal clinical trial, by the way. Um, Move Atossa into the future now. In 2050, Atossa will likely arrive at her breast oncologist clinic with a thumb-sized flash drive containing the entire sequence of her cancer genome, identifying every mutation in every gene. By the way, this costs about, on the order of, I mean, a, a variation on this technology costs on the order of about $10,000 right now for every genome. Um, the first one apparently cost several million. Um, so this is how the technology is uh, shrinking. It's unbelievable. The mutations will be organized into key pathways. An algorithm might identify the pathways that are contributing to the growth and survival of her particular cancer. Therapies will be targeted against these pathways to prevent a relapse of the tumor after surgery. She will begin with one combination of targeted drugs, expect to switch to a second cocktail when her cancer mutates, and switch again when the cancer mutates again. She will likely take some form of medicine, whether to prevent, cure, or palliate her illness for the rest of her life. This indubitably is progress. But before we become too dazzled by Tossa's survival, it is worthwhile putting it into perspective. Give a Tossa metastatic pancreatic cancer in 500 BC, and her prognosis is unlikely to have changed by more than a few months, over 2,500 years. If a Tossa develops gallbladder cancer that is not amenable to surgery, her survival changes only marginally over centuries. Even breast cancer shows a marked heterogeneity in outcome. If a Tossa's tumor has metastasized, or is estrogen receptor negative, HER2 negative, and unresponsive to standard chemotherapy, this is the so-called triple negative breast cancer, that her chances of survival might have barely changed since the time of Hunter's clinic. Give a TOSA CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia, or Hodgkin's disease in contrast, and her lifespan might have increased by 30 or 40 years. Part of the unpredictability of the trajectory of cancer in the future is that we do not know the biological basis of this heterogeneity. We cannot fathom, for instance, what makes pancreatic cancer or gallbladder cancer so markedly different from CML, for instance, or Atossa's breast cancer. What is certain, however, is that given the role of cancer in our genetic lives, even the knowledge of cancer's biology is unlikely to eradicate cancer fully. As Richard Dole suggests, we talk about him in the, in, in the book, 
and as a toss-up epitomizes, we might as well focus on prolonging life rather than eliminating death. And so the war on cancer might best be won, essentially by redefining victory. Oh, sorry, I was very much struck by your emphasis on the importance of narrative you know, between the experimental medicine and the patient. And one of the um, unintended consequences of well-meaning patient protection laws is that narrative is now blocked or extremely difficult to get to as an experimenter. And I was just kind of wondering if you could comment on that. You must have some thoughts on this. I have this experience very acutely. I run a laboratory. Um, I'm a young investigator running a laboratory. And also, um, I um, am in the clinic um, one day a week. And the dissociation, the disjunction is very acute. Um, and as an experimenter, it, I, I, I find it intensely frustrating. Um, I try, I've tried many times to get over that by, by again, by trying to emphasize um, you know, storytelling and so forth. But I personally find that intensely frustrating. I'm not sure I have a solution to it. Because I, I do feel that you know, I, I do have a strength to be in the laboratory. Um, but I think the only answer to it is, is persistence in patients. Um, the, um, I'll tell you one little piece of a story, actually, which, is which was important to me from my training. Ar Arlen Fuller, who was a, who's a remarkable uh, gynecological surgeon um, at MGH, um, would begin his rounds every morning. Um, and, you know, as people who've done surgery rounds, it's an incredible ritual. Um, quite a beautiful ritual, actually. Uh, and it begins with, you know, it starts at four in the morning, usually. And they, you know, it's bed after bed. And the junior most interns, actually, even the medical students, have prepared all these numbers from the night. They have charts and charts and charts of numbers. And so as soon as you start off, the numbers start getting rattled, ins and outs, or, you know, 2,400 milliliters minus 2,100 milliliters, temperature was this, fluctuated to that, raised to this, this much of medicine was given, blah, 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 blah. And, and Fuller would stop all of this. And he would say, well, first, let my first job, let me, let me adjust the pillows. <laughs> or he would say, uh, and of course, if, you, if, you're, if, if you're the senior surgeon, you have the luxury of doing that. It's the intern's job to, to get all the numbers ready. But he would say, well, let me first adjust the pillows. Or he would say, this chair doesn't look as if it's in a comfortable position. Can I move this chair? Um, and this activity took him no more than 22 seconds to do. Um, and yet, I cannot tell you what an enormous difference it made to the life of the patient. Um, because that was the moment, uh, you know, after surgery, she has, it was a she usually, because this was a gynecological surgery, she had come out of a, of a, of a dense, devastating experience. Just having that was so reassuring. Um, and so you learn from, you know, you learn from the masters um, of, of that kind of medicine. And I think for experimentalists, whose primary role in the, is in the laboratory, I think it's worthwhile spending time learning from clinicians um, these kinds of incredible strategies. My question is about your title, which you may want to enlarge on in terms of the training of physicians also being enlarged to humanities. I was struck by the word malady because it isn't the most common word. You know, think of disease, illness. And I had read a magnificent short story years ago called The Interpreter of Maladies. Was that an inspiration for the title? It was not, um, although, I mean, I, I, do note the, I do note the relationship between the titles. Well, you know, I found the title handwritten in an antiquarian book on cancer. Um, uh, I think it was written by a surgeon, it's hard for me to know. Um, and I found, it, it, was, it said, cancer is the emperor of all maladies, the king of our terrors. Um, and so therefore I picked, up the, I picked up that piece of the title. Um, and the second part of the title I really struggled with, which was the, uh, the, uh, the idea of a biography. Um, 
Um, I had originally subtitled this A History of Cancer, but again, I felt as if it was just too inert. Uh, it didn't feel as if it captured because, and, and you know, in, as you encounter the book, there is biography after biography in the book, human biographies, but also it felt as if I, what I'd really tried to do is to draw a portrait over time of not one disease, but, but many faces of a disease. And that, to me, was a biography. So I said, well, why shy away from the, from the word if that's what you're trying to do? And therefore, I ended up with that, with that title. I'm astounded at how you managed to uh, make it uh, uh, a quick read, for, for me anyway. <laughs> That's the biggest compliment because, you know, have you... <laughs> I'm being urged to ask a question. Um, the question is, why is it so difficult to increase awareness and participation in clinical trials for cancer today? Let me ask, answer that question with, again with the word of history um, and, and tell you why, again, it's important for all of us to read this history. Children's cancers, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which the cure of which, you know, it becomes 80, 70 to 80% curable in certain cases, really marks uh, a watershed moment in the history of cancer and perhaps in the history of medicine. Because here is a tumor that was uniformly lethal, uh, rapidly lethal, which becomes curable. And, and, and this history is actually quite densely threaded through the book because it is, of course, the cure of acute lymphoblastic leukemia that allows people like Sidney Farber and Mary Lasker and others to start imagining a war on cancer um, using high-dose cytotoxic combination chemotherapy, which re really re represents the, the bulk of our experience with chemotherapy for cancers, even solid tumors, until, the, until even today. Right? So that's the history. It turns out that nearly every child um, with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in the from the 1950s on to the 1990s, and perhaps even today, nearly every child was treated on a clinical protocol. Um, that is an, an, an inspiring and astounding phenomenon. In other words, every child contributed to some piece of knowledge about how to treat this, this really devastating disease. And it reminds us that if we, if we can't achieve that, we're, we're nowhere near that for adults for solid tumors. Um, so we really, really, really need to emphasize a capacity to, 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 to move this ahead as a, as a collaborative effort. Now, why? Why not? Um, there are several answers. I'll give you some of them. Number one is that there has been, partly as, actually ironically, in the wake of the failure of that same strategy in, in many solid tumors, the, in the 1980s, perhaps, uh, there, was a, there was a deep nihilism around cancer. Um, that nihilism actually persists today. Um, and that nihilism actually had driven away many patients from clinical trials. The trials, the drugs themselves were toxic, and they were perceived as, as very iterative. You know, gemcitabine plus carboxyplatin minus, you know, GCSM multiplied by something, three cycles, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can make, there's almost a madness and an absurdity to this, uh, this idea of, of it, and that had driven away patients. So that's one element of it, and I do think also that, that, there was a, that the patients and doctors and oncologists had lost trust. Um, and, it's, and, and doctors have worked very hard, I think, to regain the trust of patients, epitomized by anyone who's seen Margaret Edson's wit. Um, you know, that play epitomizes uh, that loss of trust. If, if anyone participates in a clinical trial after seeing wit, my hat's off to them, because, <laughs> you know, it is, it is not a pretty picture in that, in that, in that, uh, in that 
play. Um, so there are several reasons, and, but I think it's a very important point, and it goes back to the idea of legacy. We just have to remember the legacy, and if we don't put everyone on trial or learn something from it, we're not going to make progress against cancer. I'm just wondering, you talked about uh, certain treatments that, that were used and then suddenly they stopped being used because they were found ineffective. Uh, I'm wondering how certain are we that the treatments we currently have for, say, breast cancer are actually uh, effective, are, are actually useful, are actually the direction we should be going versus, you know, in 30 years, suddenly we find out, oh, no, those, those treatments were totally off the mark and, right. uh, you know, we should be going with something else. Well, so the tension, that you're, the, the, the tension that you're talking about is a very important tension in the book, which is as a clinician, this goes back to the question that was being asked before, as a clinician, you can't tell a patient, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not sure how to treat your breast cancer, Mrs. Smith. Um, come back to me in five years when I've figured out a little bit more about the genome. Right? Mrs. Smith needs, or Mrs. Jones, needs their treatment now. Um, so you don't have that luxury. And on, but as a scientist... You, you, you have to tell yourself that, that the kinds of strategies that you're using currently have got to be primitive. I mean, certainly we're primitive at the time that we were using many of these chemotherapies for many diseases, for many forms of cancer. Not for testicular cancer, where chemotherapy is remarkably effective, but for, for lung cancer, for instance, where chemotherapy is not that effective. So, um, so that tension is very acutely felt in the book. Um, that said, how do we know that, that, the, that, the, that the therapies of today will not become outmoded uh, tomorrow? I hope they become actually outmoded tomorrow. I frankly hope that, you know, I hope that, we, that in a decade from now, we, we look back and, and at, at, this, at this moment in oncology and we find it laughable, in the same sense we find purging laughable um, or, or find bleeding laughable. Um, I hope that happens. Um, and um, and that's, what, that's what makes science or medicine very dynamic, um, the knowledge of yesterday. I can tell you with, some, I can tell you with a great degree of certainty that CML, chronic myelogenous leukemia, was a disease, actually multiple myeloma, um, breast cancer, just to give you three cancers. The, the paradigms that I learned to treat as a, young, as a young fellow, the paradigms that I learned to treat these diseases have changed so dramatically that I, can, I, had, to barely, I had to relearn, as an attending, I had to relearn everything about treating all the, these three cancers in the span of my training program. Um, and so that's a reminder that, you know, Things are changing really rapidly and be becoming outmoded, but that's par for the course. In your book, you cover the story of cancer. So uh, the history of medicine is huge. The area which you, show, which you try to cover, it, it's really a big one. So I, I know you did an enormous job to reading all those stories, and you might have a good guess what what's outside, which you may not have been able to read. So uh, how do you feel, what percentage of the, the history which out there could be or, or uh, could you cover in your book? Um, I think I covered a tiny fraction. I just made sure that I sort of hit the highlight spots. Um, uh, you know, I tried to, I, and the way I did this actually is the book was very widely read even before it was published. I, I approached um, oncologists, actually Harold Varmus, um, who was very kind to read the book. Um, and he's just one of about 20 or 30 doctors and physicians and scientists and advocates and people in politics and people in literature who read the book gave feedback. Um, but that said, um, you know, I think the, the, the limit of reading 
um, even if we crammed the text down, which we did, we actually had to, had to, we had to thin the paper, cram the text down to put it into 500 pages. Um, there's a lot, there was a lot of art, uh, there's a lot of artistry in producing a book that wouldn't look as if it would become a doorstop. It already looks like a doorstop. <laughs> someone, someone, uh, someone lifted up the book and said, "This is a directory of death, uh, <laughs> a phone book of death." Um, but anyway, um, so there's a lot of we tried so desperately to cram um, all of this information, the stories, into 500 pages, but my editor said, we cannot go more than 500 pages. And we clocked in at about 567, I think, or 570. So you can imagine. The manuscript was about four times its length. Um, so one-third, uh, th three-fourths was cut. One-fourth is what remains. I wanted to ask a question about um, the breadth of the response of your colleagues. I presume that you started this book uh, while you were in, a fellow, um, and I'm curious how your clinical mentors and how your laboratory mentors responded across the board to your devoting the time and energy to write this book while you were in training, in fact. <laughs> um, so I, I, let me just make one point before I answer the question. Um, there, that is that um, there, there is a website uh, associated with the book where there, there's small, despite many efforts, there are a few typographical errors in the book. So yeah, there's a website associated with the book um, and, and also allows, actually has a timeline of the entire history of the book, um, uh, which might be useful for people to, uh, to find. It's very easy to find. If you, it's, it's called emperorofallmaladies.com, yeah, in case you're interested. Now, this is a very interesting question that you asked, which is how, how did people respond? Um, the, the first answer is I didn't tell anyone. Uh, um, I, told, um, I told about two people, two or three people, very key people, um, I told very early on, but I didn't tell anyone. Um, I just wrote quietly. Um, I, you know, um, I, I recorded quietly. I, I researched quietly. I actually went to... I, the, a lot of the archive material was in New York, so I would go up to New York on weekends from Friday you know, you had to, I had to go there on Friday because the rare books um, and manuscripts of Columbia University, which is where all of Mary Lasker's and Sidney Farber's letters, they have these incredible correspondence that spans about 40 years, um, are all kept. Um, so, um, and so there were all these deadlines that I had to meet. The bus had to land at the right place so that I could get to the rare books library in time, photocopy the things and bring them back to Boston. But I told, um, I told actually the, the, the director of the fellowship program, who was actually a part of this history, um, uh, Robert Mayer, um, I told uh, Bruce Chabner, and they were so supportive of the project um, that, uh, you know, it, it was unimaginable. Um, they made every resource available, uh, including calling up people on my behalf, um, including calling up their colleagues. They called up uh, Jay Freireich, uh, who was at, uh, in Texas, and who gave me hours and hours of time uh, doing primary recorded interviews to be able to go in, in, into the book on a weekend, on weekends, uh, over the span of several weekends. Um, and that was just one example. You know, Bob Mayer would call up someone. Bob, for instance, Bob Mayer called up um, the man who was Sidney Farber's driver um, to find out, uh, or the man, you know, how Sidney Farber had been discovered when he finally died um, was a memory that he had had from, you know, from hearing stories. Uh, and th this was just one example. There were example after example after example where um, I, I leaned on these various mentors, my colleagues, 
to find the stories, to find the names, and to find the people. Um, one last one I'll mention to you, uh, Barbara Bradfield, um, who, as I said to you, I, was, I became obsessed with finding the longest-term survivor of Herceptin, and that's Barbara Bradfield. Uh, she was treated again about four or five miles down the road from here. And, um, you know, in the end, when I was compiling the photograph section of my book, um, I said to myself that, you know, I, I wanted all the photographs, but I, the last photograph of my book, I wanted um, the, the, to be the photograph, the, you know, I wanted a photograph of, of, the, of a patient as opposed to um, a scientist or a doctor or a physician. Um, and I said I didn't have one. Um, and so I called up Barbara Bradfield, and she took a picture of herself holding a box of, holding a box of her septin in her backyard <laughs> and sent it to me on the, on the web, and that got reproduced in, in the book. So, you know, there's a, the, every, every piece of generosity was so incredible um, that I, I can just, I mean, I can give you example after example of this. Thank you.